Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, we are just about through the earnings results for the big banks. We had Morgan Stanley report uh, earnings this morning. Kind of a mixed bag, I would say, from some of the big uh, money center banks and global investment banks to kind of help us parse through what we are seeing. We welcome Ken Leon. Ken is Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Let's just start with Morgan Stanley since they just printed this morning. What was your takeaway there? So it was an earnings beat. Um, eight cents, and they did this really on the more stable businesses in wealth management, asset management, and cost control. The areas that are really a burden right now are tied to the capital markets. Uh, the equity underwriting uh, was flat, fixed income down 22%. Uh, M&A has really fallen off for Morgan Stanley and other banks down 18%, and of course trading as well. Um, has been weak uh, with investors on the sidelines as it relates to global worries about trade tariffs and things like that. So, Ken, why are shares basically flat this morning? Shares are flat, um, and I would say all the large banks had a terrific four-week performance, You know, first starting with the June 27th Federal Reserve approving their capital plans. Um, Morgan Stanley is up about 10% since June. Um, Looking at the stock today, uh, we reiterate our buy recommendation. We have a $49 target price and feel that, uh, you know, the overhang just on the capital markets, you know, for Morgan Stanley to hit it out of the park or fire on all cylinders, need to see improvement related to investment banking. So, Ken, let's talk to let's go to the capital market side of the business for these uh, big banks here. It's been, you know, I'm just thinking back, you know, three, four, five quarters. It's been very difficult for these companies to put up some good numbers. And I'm just wondering, is this kind of a, a cyclical issue, just market conditions, or is this something more secular about just kind of the profitability that these capital markets, desks, and businesses can generate for these big investment banks? It's a great question. And related to capital markets, particularly banking, it's cyclical. Um, you know, Morgan Stanley, Goldman, J.P. Morgan are usually typically in the top three rankings of anything you choose in underwriting. And then when it relates to their business, Morgan Stanley's been really moving away from kind of cyclical businesses to the ability to have more stable recurring revenue. And they're getting that from a large wealth management franchise and the ability to expand that. Um, the difference really in performance for these stocks versus other others in the financial sector is predictability. So, um, yes, capital markets is important, but I think directionally, whether you look at a Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs diversifying into retail, they're, they're looking for more predictable businesses that give investors more confidence about their outlook. So, Ken, you know, now that we have the major U.S. banks all reporting, I'm wondering, what, what are some of your big takeaways? The big takeaway is focuses on the inverted yield curve or the forward curve, which suggests um, a narrowing of net interest margin and then lower net interest income and, and calibrating what that does for the earnings outlook. So that's a factor. But at the same time, there's other inputs into net interest income, which for the other large banks, uh, 
that can be you know 50 percent of their total net revenue. Uh, it's growth in investor accounts or in retail banking. Uh, the consumer is very strong, uh, yet each of these banks has sensitivity to net interest income. So they have to pull growth from non-interest income, which is their businesses, and then also from cost control. Uh, the other big plus, because we, we've moved the story away from the capital plans, these are very significant for all these banks. The ability to have significant return of capital with buyback and dividend increases, including Morgan Stanley today, you know, it's a 10.7 billion buyback, 16.7% dividend increase rates. These banks are beginning to look at attractive total return yield stocks. And you could not say that over the last seven to 10 years. So I guess, Ken, one thing I'm struggling with, I mean, I get the, the sort of buyback dividend story, it's just an income story. Uh, but going back to what you were talking about with the net interest margin, this has been offset in the past years of financial repression in the wake of Fed's zero rate policies. It's been offset by much higher capital markets activity. What does it say to you that we are not seeing that acceleration in capital markets activity now and, and you know, and the prospects going forward, even with uh, lower rates ahead, the prospects that perhaps capital markets are kind of done as far as what they need to be doing? Well, there's two areas here. First, related to uh, interest rates, this is a reversal to where we were at the end of last year. So analysts were factoring in rising rates, perhaps two to three increases, uh, and that went away. So then, of course, that reversed net interest income. The other part of your question is really interesting, and it really ties to what's going to spur the capital markets. We had Chairman Powell two weeks ago testify. Essentially, the worry is about, in the U.S. at least, investment, capital investment in plant and equipment. Um, and there's been a, a delay in doing that. There's also uncertainties that really tie to CEO confidence, uh, the ability to invest here or overseas, or even mergers and acquisitions you know, for all these banks is down 20, 30%. Um, there is a, a, a good pipeline related to uh, M&A, um, but it's been very challenging right now because the visibility is very difficult. Ken Leon, thank you so much for being with us and for all of your insights. Ken Leon, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA Research. It's 10.33 on Wall Street. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We are so lucky to be joined with, uh, by Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Opinion columnist focusing on all things technology. Obviously, today, the big story, not just in technology, but broadly across stock markets, Netflix shares down more than 10%. Uh, they reported yesterday after the bell that they missed their subscriber forecast by what? More than 50%? Almost 50%. Almost 50%. Yeah. And that its uh, subscriber base dropped in the United States. What happened? I do not know. I think the company's... <laughs> Shira, the co- representing the company, what is your explanation? The, the company's explanation was a couple things. One is that Netflix increased prices for most subscription plans, both in the United States and in several other uh, countries at the beginning of this year, starting at the beginning of this year. And the company said that it missed its subscriber forecast 
um, even more than it expected in those places where it increased prices, which to me shows a lack of pricing power for Netflix, right? If, if the idea of Netflix is this thing is so valuable, people will pay whatever it costs to get access to it. I think this, these second quarter numbers kind of deflated that idea. The second issue Netflix raised was it has, you know, it, it touts all of these kind of original programmings or, or stuff that it buys and airs exclusively on Netflix. And it said that the slate of programming in the second quarter drew in fewer subscribers than it had expected, which is not a great sign either for Netflix's ability to kind of pick must-watch programming or, frankly, for this implicit promise of Netflix that it doesn't really matter. Individual pieces of content are not that material. The thing that matters is this kind of buffet of offerings. So if people are looking at that buffet and making a decision to turn off Netflix or not subscribe to Netflix because of one or two shows, that maybe indicates that individual pieces of programming are more important than Netflix suggests. And again, I think that that dense the thesis behind the optimistic scenario about Netflix. Sure. I, I think you're spot on there. I think that, and that raises, I think, probably the big issue for a lot of people that are concerned about this stock, the bears out there, that, boy, it kind of sounds and looks like, it's starting to sound, it's starting to look like more of a, just a traditional media company where you got to have hits and, you, you know, it's not just about having the cool, you know, this the secret sauce of, oh, I'm, I'm a streamer now. Did they talk at all about, uh, or to what extent did they talk about competition? Because we know that Disney Plus is launching this year, then AT&T and, and Comcast are launching their streamers next year. How did they kind of frame that up? Netflix, at least in the second quarter, downplayed the effect of competition because it said, look, we, we're all aware of these looming competing Netflix-like services from HBO or, uh, or from AT&T's uh, Time Warner division, from Apple, from NBC down the road, but those haven't started yet, right? So it's not like there's an immediate competition uh, uh, competitive threat out there that is currently launched. Disney, I forgot to, to mention Disney. Uh, so there's nothing new necessarily on the horizon, but you got to think that some of the competition, it's it's in people's brains, right? If you know, hey, there's going to be this new thing from Disney or from HBO, maybe that plays in people's minds that they're kind of saving money to see what Apple comes up with or what Disney comes up with. But uh, Netflix kind of said that that wasn't a factor in the second quarter. So this sounds bad. Okay, I mean, like, I'm, That's I'm your just <laughs> astute, astute analysis from Lisa. Trenchant, trenchant yeah. analysis. Um, this all sounds really bad, and certainly you're seeing a big stock price move. Look at the bonds. Some of them traded down, uh, you know, a couple cents on the dollar yesterday, but they're still trading above par. And this is a company that has relied on debt markets to continue to burn cash. And it seems like debt markets believe in them. They're saying, we believe. And you're seeing investors, uh, analysts across Wall Street saying, we do believe also. And we're going to say, we should, you should go out and buy Netflix shares. What's the bull case from here that this was just a temporary blip and that we'll see Netflix gain its mojo uh, in the third quarter? I think the bull case is that, that as you said, that, that this may be a blip. You see that Netflix is expecting that it's going to return to more normal kind of subscriber growth numbers in this current third quarter. But let me make it clear. Netflix does not exist, period, without the faith of bond investors. This is a company that is burning three to three and a half billion dollars in cash every single year. It is not financially sustainable unless it can continue to borrow money at cheap rates 
Otherwise, there is no Netflix. And so anything that dents the story, dents the optimism of both bond and stock investors, which are kind of working in tandem here on Netflix, anything that, that dents that story threatens to kind of unravel this whole thing. Just a little fun fact. Shira Ovide and I have bonded for, for months and months over the Netflix story because we share joint interest. Account? You share an account? We do not share, we do not share an account. <laughs> we merely think that bond investors are completely irrational when it comes to Netflix, and we do not get it. I no longer write columns, so I'm not going to say that. But there's $140 million. There just says $140 million of equity cushion underneath my sure. bonds. I don't have to worry. So that's, that, that's kind of the play. Bloomberg Opinion columnist here over day. Thank you so much. Well, investors are trying to gauge where the U.S. economy is amidst, you know, weakening economies in Europe, slowing economy in China. How can the U.S. economy remain vibrant when many of its trading partners are struggling? To get the latest, uh, we welcome our guest, God Lebanon, Chief Economist, North America at the Conference Board. Uh, so, God, what's the data that you're seeing telling you about the U.S. economy? Well, so our uh, leading economic index uh, declined today, and that's not good news, but it's not as bad as it, as bad as it looks. Um, I think uh, our index is uh, slightly tilted towards the manufacturing sector, which is doing uh, not as well as the rest of the economy. Um, I think, uh, on the other hand, we have uh, very strong uh, consumer spending numbers in recent months. Uh, you know, there was after the weak winter, there was a concern that uh, consumer spending is going to remain uh, in a slow territory, but that's not the case. Um, so I think uh, the, the decline in the leading index is not as bad as it looks. It's interesting, though, to me, because this is the story we keep hearing. The consumer is strong. Uh, industrials and corporate America feeling less certain and certainly seeing less investment. Uh, so is this sort of indicative of the consumer being a lagging indicator and manufacturers being out front in the economic cycle or the other way around? Well, in general, um, consumer spending is actually leading business investment, historically. Uh, I think uh, part of the weakness that uh, we are seeing now uh, in business investment and in manufacturing is a result of the weakness uh, in, in the rest of the world. But I think, and, and you know, if, if manufacturing and business investment um, will remain slow at some point, it will impact hiring and and consumer spending as well. But at the moment, there seems to be some strong, uh, um, strong uh, growth, uh, independent growth, I would say, from the consumer. So when we talk about, you highlight the manufacturing sector, we've, we've had some evidence that that has been weakening over the last several quarters. I'm just trying to parse out how much of that is just kind of trade concerns, um, you know, maybe uh, corporate spending kind of pulling back in the face of uncertainty about trade, or is it just a kind of a slowing of, or just part of the cycle? Here we are, 10 plus years into a cycle. Do you have a sense of how much is just, hey, it's just the cycle versus, boy, I'm really concerned about some of these macro geopolitical issues? I, I think it's, it's both. We, we sometimes have cycles in manufacturing that don't spread to the rest of the economy. Like 2015, 2016, we had a, a genuine recession in manufacturing, yet the economy continued to grow. I, I, I think 
the manufacturing, as I said, is more impacted by the rest of the world, and there is some significant weakness in some parts of the world. Uh, so I, I think um, it is a, a lot because of that. But if consumer spending continues to grow at three plus percent, manufacturing at some point will pick up. So just to put this in perspective, the 0.3% uh, decline in the leading economic indicators, uh, the index, uh, is the first decline since last December. And you talked about the manufacturing, how that led it. But the housing side of things, the real estate side, I'm trying to figure out where that fits into the narrative because that also contributed to the decline. Yeah. So housing has been a weakness for a, a year, but I, I think one of the main implications of the large drop in interest rates that we have in the economy uh, and, and over a hundred basis point a drop in long-term rates will boost the economy. Um, and so a lot of the impact should be through housing. Uh, we are seeing already some increase in mortgage applications uh, and I think uh, housing will, uh, will improve uh, for the rest of the year. So, God, um, where are you in the recession discussion? There are certain parties out there, certain factions in the marketplace that feel like, gee, the timing, if nothing else, would lead us to a recession perhaps by mid-2020. What is your data telling you? I, I think the leading indicators are good for three to six months, and they are not signaling any recession during that time. Beyond that, uh, I think uh, we have to think what uh, what will cause a recession. Uh, there could things could pop up, uh, but at the moment I don't see uh, anything obvious that will cause a recession. So I think it's as likely to happen in 2021 or 2022 or or 2020, but uh, it's, it's not the fact that we just broke the historical record for the longest expansion doesn't by itself mean that we are about to face a recession. God Levinon, thank you so much for being with us. God Levinon is Chief Economist for North America at the Conference Board. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.